Uh, it's an honor and a privilege for me to get to do this. I, I have two young children, and my wife works, and so I haven't done breakfast meetings in a year and 10 months, which has been really difficult. And so uh, I need to, out loud, I guess since I'm being recorded, this is even more helpful. Didn't plan this, but to thank my wife for letting me be here. I love settings like this. Um, there's a specific way in which God has made us as men. It's a design that He created, and it's good. And like everything else in this world, it gets a little bit jarbled, jumbled up, and messed up. And at the same time, there's a glory that we need to call out in each other as men. And we don't often have venues to do that. It's either a mixed company or we'll not do what I'm thankful Pat is leading us to do this summer, and it's to actually look at topics that in many ways have a lot more to do with us as men. So the idea of desires, <clears throat> I think, is one of those, and specifically, I think, uh, the desires of lust and greed, which this week we're going to talk about lust, but the following week we're going to really tackle the idea of greed. Very common for us to struggle with those as men. So I'm going to read the scripture and pray, and then we're just going to dive right in. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, that's where we'll focus today, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, help us to see what we should see and not desire to see what we shouldn't. Help us not to covet and to lust over that which we do not have. Help us to look up, to set our eyes where they're meant to be, and conform the desires of our hearts to what we see. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me begin with a word and a warning. So if you're someone like me who maybe struggles to keep attention, I'll try and give you the, the good stuff first. Uh, a, a quick word when, when we're talking about the topic of desires. Um, it's always easier to examine our actions than our desires. Always. Um, that which we do is ever before us. That which we desire is mostly hidden from us. It's a matter of the heart. And I would tell you that the harder and the more important work as a man of God is digging deep. It's going in. And you know this, because when I say the word lust, the first thing we're thinking about, if you've been in a talk like that, is accountability partners, or filters, or removing things that have tempted you in your eyes. Right? Instead of a smartphone, you decide you need to transition back to a dumb phone. But if you carry a dumb phone around, everyone's going to know that you have a problem <laughs> because no one has flip phones anymore. Right? There's nothing wrong with taking action steps to try and curb our false appetites. But it is really an utter failure if we stop at action steps because the cravings the fountain from which those things come, the source of the temptation, the place where the real battle exists, it's below the surface. 
And so just a word as we talk about desires and specifically desires of the eyes, which today is going to be focused on lust, I want to encourage you, do the harder work. Get below what you're going to do to try and help. Or, if this isn't your particular area of struggle, what you're going to do to try and help everyone else. Get below. It's always easier to examine our actions than our desires. And this is the warning. I I couldn't really think of another way to say this. Don't hide. Don't hide. Now, hiding can look like not saying anything at all, but the particular form of hiding that our enemy is really fond of is telling 70% of the truth 90% of the time. And that 30% is enough to keep you shackled and chained for your entire life. This is not just in the area of sexual sin, right? Sexual temptation. This is also in the areas of money, of possessions, of our marriages, of our parenting, of our desire to be married when we're not married, of our dating. Do not hide. Don't become someone who tells the truth, 70% of it, most of the time. And the reason is growth doesn't happen in the dark. You know what grows in the dark? Weeds. I spent some time last night trying to pull all of them. You know what stinks? They're going to come back again until they can be exposed. A lot of times we sink into hiding and we think in terms of these desires that if we, if we shed into the light but stay in the dark, we're going to experience at least some kind of growth in this area. And the truth is the only thing that's going to grow is weeds. Weeds choke out life. They're actually fruit of someone who is hiding. So I'm, I'm encouraging you, please, please don't hide. I mean, this was the first consequence of sin in the garden, wasn't it? I'm going to tempt you to sin. And you're going to make leaves. And you're going to hide from God Himself, and you're going to hide from one another. But what's crazy about it is, I'm, I'm not just going to treat this as a momentary response to a big mistake. I'm actually going to teach you to hide as a way of life. And so you'll forever feel dissonance with God. You can't sense His presence. And you'll forever feel dissonance with your spouse and with others because there's a sense of shame. And all I have to do is offer you fig leaves. I'm speaking as the tempter. I'm not actually going to give anyone leaves today. Don't hide. Pat mentioned my story. I'm actually going to offer a very short confession of my own, and then we're actually going to look at a longer confession of St. Augustine. Uh, That is not me avoiding. Actually, it could be, but it's Augustine's fault because he wrote a book called Confessions, and he very vulnerably and honestly and candidly, if you... If you don't want someone to know your sin for 2,000 years, don't put it in print. (laughs) The same could be said for me on a microphone being recorded. But it's important. If we're going to dig deep and not hide, 
I would tell you that I hid from my lustful behaviors until I was about 16 or 17 years old. They started when I was about 10. And I finally had the courage as a different person stood up front and offered me a way. And what I confessed that day was my behaviors. One, I was 16 or 17. If you've been around 16 or 17-year-old males recently, you know that digging deep is like trying to put a shovel through concrete. But it wasn't until I was about 30 years old that I finally started to confess my lustful desires. It was 10 times scarier And the healing that came from it was ten times better. It started in the privacy of a counseling room. It expanded to two very dear friends who were trusted and safe. And then a couple of elders in our church who were trusted and safe to me. Why go to such possible extremes? By the way, 30 years old is only six and a half years ago for me. I've been at this church for almost 14 years. That's a testimony that no one is above this, that everyone is susceptible to hiding. And it's also a testimony to the the grace that can be found in this church body. I was not shamed. These few went to war with me. Dig deep and don't hide. So when I say I began to experience true healing with regards to the desires of my eyes, what what does this passage mean when it says the desire of the eyes? I don't feel like I need to harp on this too long. I'm not going to do exegetical work on the passage itself. I'm trusting in five previous weeks there's been enough of that to give you an idea of what's going on in this passage. So I'm going to use the words of Jesus from his only fully recorded sermon. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is actually darkness, how great the darkness must be. Our eyes really are the window into our souls. They reveal our desires within by what we choose to see because what we choose to see ends up becoming what we want and what we want becomes what we seek. Okay? For the sake of time, I'm not going to read you an article I read that was fascinating that science actually proves this. Um, We can fake gestures. We can fake smiles. We can put on a face, so to speak, but your eyes, you can't control. And doctors, psychologists as well, but doctors, ophthalmologists, talk about the fascination of the eye and specifically the pupil. That if you could see closely enough and see whether the pupil is dilated or not, you would know whether someone is telling the truth or lying. You would know whether someone is angry or at peace. 
you would know pretty much everything that's going on inside because the people can't lie. Isn't that fascinating? There's something particularly powerful and telling about what we let in our eyes and about what we seek with our eyes. That's why Jesus gives such a strong warning about it. Our eyes and what we allow them to see is of the utmost importance. There's a little children's song, which I've never sung with my children, by the way. That sounds judgmental when I tell you it. Maybe you'll know why. But it says, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's some truth to that. If you're five and listening to that, it may sound a little creepy. But as men particularly, designed by God to have good appetites to be fulfilled in the boundaries He's made, and particularly for those things to be brought to life through what we see, we have to with all diligence not just guard the desires of our heart, but we have to guard the desires of our eyes. So what are you looking at? Not me. When you're out from here, What do you see? What do you seek to see? What do you desire? These things are directly related. And if you could take the time to do the hard work of digging deep, the focus and the direction of your eyes will tell what your heart craves. We often fix our eyes on the things we think are missing. And that tells us what our heart craves. Your eyes show your true desires, and your true desires control your eyes. Pat already mentioned that desires is really epithumia. Epi means over most of the time when it's translated. Thumos is desire. So when it says desires, it's actually over desires. Or as he said, desires are out of control. The things that we think we control inside are controlling us. And in that sense, they become ruling desires. There's an obvious danger in over-desiring anything we can see, and that's exactly how idols are created, is it not? Adultery begins here. It really begins here. But the passageway is here. The things that we would erect for ourselves is a source of sustenance or satisfaction or stability in our life. So much of it begins here. The over-desire in our heart comes out not just through our mouths, but through our eyes. And we crave and we want and we lust. We think we're ruling over our desires, but the truth is they begin to rule over us. And depending on the arena of life we find ourselves over-desiring, we, we kind of give epithumia a different name. Over-desire of the eyes in the realm of intimacy and sex is lust. Overdesire of the eyes in the realm of possessions and money is greed. And because those are so common for us as men, those are the things we're going to discuss. Now, you'll see on your handout, there's a little paradigm. I'm not going to expound on that long. I think you guys are mostly literate, at least. I won't point fingers. But it's just a paradigm, a contrast that's in this passage. 
And the passage is really about looking at what desires are controlling you and that telling you what's ruling your life, whether it's God or the world. And so worldly desires create disorder. They take that which God intended and set up and they try to flip it on its head so that him and his desires are not ruling your heart, but the world and its desires are ruling your heart. So, so worldly desires disorder. That's found in verse 15 when it juxtaposes the world, love of the world, and the Father, the love of the Father. And the tension that exists whenever we let over-desires start to take control. Okay, worldly desires disappear. It's the most frustrating thing about them. They never deliver what they promise. They don't. We'll see specifically how that's true of lust. Verse 17 says, the world and its desires are passing away. Okay, and the contrary to that, or contrasting that, godly desires rule and godly desires remain. You could say godly desires overrule and godly desires remain. So let's talk about lust, the specific place where over-desire, over-desire of the eyes, Okay? meets the realm of intimacy in sex, sexual appetite, sexual craving. John tells us in this passage, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And here already we see that things are getting turned upside down. I just mentioned this. When over-desires take control in our hearts, these epithumia are by nature not things that we control. They're things that control us. The only control Scripture tells you to have and tells you you do have is self-control. No other control is under your jurisdiction. But epithumia actually wage war against the idea that you could set a boundary on the good desire that He's placed in your heart. It creates disorder. Lust specifically does that. It is good for you to want intimacy, particularly with a woman. It is good for you in the right committed relationship to want that kind of intimacy to show itself through sexual interaction. Can we be candid today as men? But that epi, that over-desire, it begins to rule and reign. And lust creates disorder. Okay? For, for help, I want to offer a definition. This comes from um, a sermon called Battling the Unbelief of Lust, if you want to write that down. It's 30 years old, so this is pre-internet. In case you're uh, not particularly thinking that you struggle with lust because pornography is not your specific issue, lust predates us all. We can go back to the sins of Noah and his sons and see that it didn't take long for it to take hold. And then to Abraham. We see it with Potiphar. It's, it's all over the place. But lust is mainly a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. I'm going to say that again. Lust is mainly a sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. 
Here's how it disorders. It's as if saying to the other person, the object of our eyes, I want to use your body to curve my sexual appetite. But I'm not going to acknowledge or honor you as a person. I know you're made in God's image to be loved and known and even rescued like me. I'm not going to offer rescue. I'm going to use you. I want your body, not you. None of us, when we lust, are saying that out loud, but that is what is taking place. Okay? It not only dishonors the other person, but it disregards God's image. His desired order for things gets turned upside down. And the potential object of His affection and His care gets turned into something for our own use. And I would even say abuse. That sounds a lot more insidious than just a glance, doesn't it? Because lust in its seed form leads to a pattern of that happening over and over and over again. This is obviously one of the dangers of pornography, which is one of the most common vehicles for lust. I'm not going to give you statistics today. If you're here and you're convinced that it's not that big of an issue, I personally want you to come tell me that. I will very strongly disagree with you. And I will try to convince you otherwise. It is a common cold, but it is a deadly one. We cannot downplay the dangers of pornography. God intended sex to be freely enjoyed within a committed marriage relationship. Those are his boundaries. Pornography creates a world for sexual over-desire to be gratified without boundaries, without commitment, without responsibility at all. It provides fake sex and false intimacy with no responsibility. It provides freedom to use another human without regard for their humanity. It not only dishonors the other person, but it disregards God's design. It creates disorder, and it disorders our lives. Its seed form begins with a common occurrence familiar to all of us. Okay? And it goes a little something like this. Our eyes are diverted from a woman's face down. If you want to write this down, always look up. That's a pretty safe rule of thumb. Okay? Not only because you will honor the woman, but you actually might end up going up higher and realizing that when you fix your gaze towards God, you start to become like Him yourself. Okay? So always look up, but we're tempted and we will let our eyes get diverted and we'll go down instead of up. And the practice of doing this, we do something like this. We rationalize. It's a simple, harmless act. It's a glance, not a gaze. Right? I'm only male. I'm a visual creature. I'm not sure if I was recognizing beauty or body, but it's not really that big of a deal. And our rationalization makes us minimize it. It's not really that big of a deal. And all of a sudden what happens is we've created in seed form an opportunity for us to justify not honoring a woman by looking her in the face, but by dishonoring her and looking down. 
and we've created a system that allows us to do so. That actually is the seed form of adultery. That's why Jesus said that really strong, hyperbolic statement. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have looked upon a woman with what? With lustful intention in your heart, you've already committed adultery. No, I haven't. I haven't touched her. Yes, you have. In seed form, adultery exists in your heart through the vehicle of lust. We have to treat it this way. It disorders everything. We have to take it seriously. St. Augustine knew this well and spoke of this struggle with lust and how it disordered his life and his work, The Confessions. This is book two. I want to read this. Book two is at the beginning. I guess back then if you wrote a lot of books, you could talk about books within books. I'm not sure. Okay, but he had book two in his one book, Confession. And what was it that I delighted in but to love and to be loved? That's his true desire. But I kept not the measure of love of mind to mind, friendship's bright boundary, but out of the muddy lust of the flesh and the bubblings of youth, mists fumed up which clouded and overcast my heart, that I could not discern the clear brightness of love from the fog of lustfulness. Both confusedly boiled within me. And they hurried my unstayed youth over the precipice of unholy desires, and they sunk me in a gulf of nastiness. God, Your wrath had gathered over me, and I knew it not. I was grown deaf by the clanking chain of my mortality, the punishment of the pride of my soul, and I strayed further from Thee. And You left me alone. And I was tossed about and wasted and dissipated. And I boiled over in my fornications. And you held your peace. You didn't move in. Oh God, my tardy joy. You then held your peace. And I wandered further and further from you into more and more fruitless seed plots of sorrows with a proud dejectedness and a restless weariness. And where was I? How far was I exiled from the delights of your house in the age of my flesh when the madness of lust took the rule over me and I resigned myself wholly to it. It's a pretty strong confession, isn't it? But that's what lust does. Where was I? What happened? How did I get this far from you, O God? It was just a glance. And now it's washing me. It's ruling over me. It's taking control of me. Where are you? Where are you, God? Lust creates disorder, but that's not all it does. It disappears. This one's shorter, in case you wondered. John says in this passage, the world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. Don't buy into a bad investment. It's passing away. Lust disappears. It's like a mirage in the desert. It presents itself as water for sexual thirst, but it delivers nothing. As a matter of fact, if you, like me, have grown prey, to lust, what ends up happening in the end is you're less satisfied. Let me put it differently. Your hunger 
increases. That which you thought would settle and curb the appetite or the desire actually inflames it. Where you have to have more and you have to have different. And if you have a conscience at all, you start to know that this has nothing to do with honoring someone or having a relationship with them. You're trying to do it with as many, to see as many women as you possibly can see. (sighs) Lust never delivers on its promises. I have yet to meet a man who told me of his adulterous relationship where it delivered what it promised in the beginning. At best, it offers momentary release. But if you know, like I know, it is way too momentary. It is a passing away kind of relief. And what it leaves behind is a bigger and gaping hole. It will not work. We're not satisfied. We're hungrier. Its promise disappears. Not only that, it makes the other person disappear, doesn't it? I just I want to go back to that, and I know it's hard to think. But that woman who we see and then we go down instead of up, whether it's in person or on a phone or a computer, wherever it may be, across the street, wherever it may be, We know she has a name. We know that she has hopes and dreams. We know that she has weakness weakness and brokenness and sin. We know she also has great gifts because she's made in God's image, which means we know that He cares about her. We know that she's someone's daughter. I've got my daughter on my phone. And you can't see it because someone just texted me. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's friend. She's possibly someone's sister. And lust takes everything that could be beautiful about her and it makes it all disappear. It strips her of human dignity. It robs her of the potential of any goodness. It takes away her name. Any type of God-given glory that could remain is completely and utterly gone. And then we wonder why we find ourselves using and hiding. Using and hiding. We can't deal with the shame of knowing deep down that that's exactly what we're doing with the desires of our eyes. It's pretty horrific, isn't it? It dehumanizes her. She disappears for the sake of our use. And our fellowship with God disappears too. It's harder to pray. And if we do pray, we just keep praying about this same thing over and over again. We sound like Augustine in his first confession there. It's hard to worship with a clear conscience. It's hard to love our neighbor. It's hard to hear his voice because the loudness of the voice of shame is so loud that we can't seem to hear the quietness of the forgiveness that He offers in Jesus Christ. So we certainly can't be ruled by that forgiveness. 
And somehow lust makes our humanness, our dignity disappear too. Lust disappears. So brothers, I want to close. There's hope because God's desires rule and remain. Okay, that's how it ends. Whoever does the will of God will remain forever. And why is that? It's because God's desires overrule. And once they overrule, they remain. They are not weeds. They are health. They are life. They are fruit. They are growth. And that's what happens in us is through confession we seek forgiveness and we let Him have His way in us. Okay, In in the same way He is eternal and so His desires are eternal, so also He births those eternal desires into us through the forgiveness of Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. And the Spirit starts to overrule, doesn't He? I am better now than I was six years ago. Six years ago, I was better than I was at 16. And these God-inserted, these God-born, these Spirit-infused desires, they start to change the direction and the seeking of my eyes. It's forgiveness we need and we have to seek. And it's forgiveness we can have. John tells us that, doesn't he, in the first chapter of this letter? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all uncleanliness, all unrighteousness. My little children, I I write this to you so that you may not sin. But, but if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who before God the Father pleads for your behalf. I want to give you an opportunity now. I think you have 15, 20 minutes. If you have less than that, I do apologize. Next week will be greed, so it will be more narrow. And you'll have more time to discuss. So if you feel like your um, discussion is being cut short, it's okay to carry that on at the beginning of next time. Okay? But I want to read to you Augustine's final confession. You'll see this, that through forgiveness, lust gets traded for love. Because faith, hope, and love are the greatest, but... Faith, hope, and love remain, but love is the greatest. Right? And through forgiveness in the Spirit, greed gets traded for generosity. Okay? This is is how Augustine says that lust came to an end. I'm going to start a little bit before what's printed for you. I cast myself down and I know not how under a certain fig tree and giving full vent to my tears and the floods of my eyes gushed out and I hoped it was an acceptable sacrifice to you. Well, not indeed the words, but to this purpose I said so much unto you. And you, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, will you be angry with me forever? Remember not my former sins, for I felt that I was held by them. And I sent up these sorrowful words, How long? Why not now? Why not is there this hour an end to my uncleanness? And so I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of heart when I heard from a house as if a voice, a boy or a girl, I know not, but they were chanting and repeating, Take up and read. Take up and read. And instantly my countenance changed. 
And so checking the torrent of my tears, I arose and interpreting it, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God, I opened the book and I read the first chapter I should find. I seized it, I opened it, and in silence, I read that on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. Romans 13, 14. No further would I read, nor need I, for instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt washed away. This is where you pick up. But where through all those years and out of what low and deep recess was my free will called forth in a moment, whereby to submit my neck to your easy yoke and my shoulders to your light burden, O Christ Jesus, my helper and my redeemer. How sweet did it once become to me to want the sweetness of those of your toys. And what I feared to be parted from, the old toys, was now a joy to part with. For you cast them forth from me, you true and highest sweetness. And now is my soul free from the biting cares of canvassing and getting and weltering in filth and scratching off the itch of lust. And my infant tongue spoke freely to you, my brightness, my riches, my health, the Lord my God. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? If you fell asleep halfway through, read it later. It's powerful. There's no amount of craving or longing or thirsting or hungering that is inappropriate. There's no such thing as over-desire when you look up. And what's fascinating is when maybe for the first time you see Him gazing down. And you sense His over-desire over you. That's the sort of thing that comes through forgiveness and sets us free from chasing disorderly, disappearing things. I'm going to pray and then you guys begin to discuss. I'd recommend the last two questions on the back. Father, open our eyes that we may see, incline our hearts that we might desire, reorder those things inside, and help us to long not only for the things of you, but for you yourself, and help us to see as you look down exactly those things that you wish us to know and to be. I pray for courage for any in here, old or young, who may need to be set free from hiding or refusing to dig. Restore to them the joy of your salvation through the desire of their eyes. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.